Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of our Baseball Weekly, the weekly podcast from the Baseball Subreddit. If you've enjoyed previous episodes, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Today, Andy, Deej, and Martin explore if there's any way Mike Trout could play his way out of the Hall of Fame, and then Deej and Martin stick around for Maz to join in talking about the blockbuster trade from the week, the Indians-Mets trade. Unfortunately, our previously teased guest for the week had to cancel due to a family emergency, and with, well, everything that's been going on this week, we had a little trouble finding a replacement guest, but our interview series will continue next week with sporting news writer Ryan Fagan and talking about his Hall of Fame ballot. Before all that, though, for this week, Maz is here to join me in talking about the news from around baseball this week. Maz, outside of how everyone's week went, how was your week? Well, thank you for having me, Lewis. Good to hear from you again. Uh, my week, I guess, all things considered, aside from the obvious, was pretty okay. I cried at Jeopardy on Friday, as probably anybody that watched Jeopardy did. <laughs> but aside from that, not entirely too bad in my own personal bubble, I'd say. Yeah, and unfortunately, baseball had a bit of a sad week. At the end of last year, we lost a Hall of Famer. It was, I think... If I recall, it was the worst year, losing seven Hall of Famers. I think that tied the previous record for most Hall of Famers that passed away in a single year. And 2021 started off with losing Dodger great Tommy Lasorda. I mean, Lasorda is just a legend of baseball, one of the best managers of all time. Um, One of the people that's synonymous when it comes to Dodger manager. He's probably one of the people that you think of first or second. He was 93, so he definitely had a full life, but I mean, it always is bad when a Hall of Famer goes, uh, especially someone like him. He was, of course, as we know, elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame via the Veterans Committee in 1997 as a manager. His plaque just has one team on it, Los Angeles NL. As his plaque says, one of the baseball's most engaging personalities and a great ambassador for his sport. Managed the Dodgers with an impenetrable passion, claiming to, quote, bleed Dodger blue. In his 47th season with the Dodgers organization, when he retired as manager, fourth manager in history to guide same franchise for 20 years, during which he won eight division titles, four NL pennants, and World Series championships in 1981 and 1988. 61 postseason games managed ranks third most in history. Really, like I said, just a legend of the game. Now, if I recall, Lasorda was an ambassador for the game in that he would often find his way onto other things that were being broadcast on TV. Oh, absolutely. He did have a handful of cameos in television shows, movies. Famously, he was in Everybody Loves Raymond is probably the one that people think of, where I've never seen it personally, but I've seen the clip in the last few weeks. He was helping Ray with cooking. He was also in Silver Spoons, an episode of Simon and Simon, was in the Matt LeBlanc movie Ed, which I'm sure some (laughs) 90s kids remember for being a terrible movie. And also, as I found out in research for this, I found out he was also a voice in Homeward Bound 2, Lost in San Francisco. I, I didn't know it either, and I haven't seen Homeward Bound 2 in a long time as well, but... I guess he plays Lucky Lasorda, which is an animal, a dog or a cat. But that's just precious. I don't know. 
but take that information as you will. Um, but yeah, he, he's just a legendary figure on the screen, on the baseball field. And really, what, what can you say about him that hasn't already been said? Rest in peace, Tommy Lasorda. You'll always be remembered as a Dodger legend. Some of the other news from around baseball this week is on the other side of L.A., where the Angels' former visiting clubhouse manager is, well, trying to dig up some dirt on some MLB players in his attempt to basically have a wrongful termination suit against the Angels because he was fired for the reason he says is that he was providing foreign substances to visiting teams for use by their pitchers like pine tar and rosin mixture so that, you know, they could use it. And he's saying, well, the Angels pitching staff has been using it. Why was I fired for providing it? And then he lists off, you know, Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, basically trying to drop this big juicy truth bomb on MLB. But is it really that surprising, Matt? Did you find that shocking at all to find out? I don't really find it surprising because I think it's kind of assumed that some pitchers use things to help them get an edge. Um, And I think it's kind of just a truth of baseball where as long as a pitcher isn't being overly obvious or being quite frankly stupid about how they do it, it kind of gets a bit of a blind eye turn to it. I think he named guys like Verlander and Cole because those are like people that really stand out. If you were to say Dylan Bundy, you know, going for the Angels, it was using pine tar, you'd go, oh, uh, really? And he's still not having that good of luck? You you cheated? Yeah. He, for this? He cheated this year? <laughs> uh, all right, sure. But you hear a guy like Cole who had an incredible 2019 and people would think kind of bumped out a little bit in 2020 and then a guy like Verner Verlander obviously who didn't play in 2020 you go oh especially with how old Verlander's getting people have saying that he's kind of had a career rejuvenation and now you hear this guy saying I provided him with pine tar and you go oh it, it makes you think a little bit but I don't really buy it I think it's kind of universal truth like I said and I think he's only hurting himself and just kind of screaming into the void a little bit Yeah, I mean, it's one of baseball's most open secrets that pitchers are using things to help get a better grip on the ball. I know Trevor Bauer had his big rant about it and then this year decided to really go all out with using it to get a better grip. Now, I think his accusations on the Astros in particular about using it is that they weren't just using it for grip, but they were leveraging it in a way that other teams weren't that, I don't know, maybe crosses that line because better seem okay with pitchers using things to get a better grip because they don't want a 98-mile-per-hour fastball whizzing by their ear. Hmm. And they want pitchers to be able to have some control over the pitches, and they also want their pitchers to be able to control their pitches. So unless you're like Michael Pineda Hmm. and smearing pine tar all over your neck, people aren't going to call you out on it. I actually remember, I think it was that same year that Pineda got caught. I feel like it was a minor leaguer in the Yankees organization tweeted out something about, oh, hey, look at this Red Sox pitcher using it. And then that tweet got deleted and it was kind of assumed that one of the higher ups is like, hey, cut it out. <laughs> Everyone uses it. You can't. You're blowing you can't it. Do that, blowing man. it for everybody. What are you doing? Yeah. Don't don't ruin this for everyone. <laughs> hey, so Trevor Bauer thinks that the Astros did something a little shady. Oh, man. Knock me over with a feather on that one. Yeah, exactly. So I, 
you know, it's one of those things where when pretty much every pitcher is doing it, it it's hard to get too worked up about it. I think that MLB just needs to get over that and come up with an approved substance for pitchers to use that does help them get a better grip on the ball without being able to, you know, doctor the ball up too much. But that's just something that's been ignored in MLB so long that it's it's like the no fraternization rule at this point. Like, it's in there, but no one really cares about it. Definitely, especially with the way that pitchers are kind of discriminated against when it comes to some of the rules that are being made, when it comes to umpires squeezing pitchers on the strike zone more and kind of them redefining what the strike zone actually is and it's like what, what are we gonna do we need something to get a little bit of, a, of an advantage going like come on and it's I'll, I'll take it because the truly talented pitchers can do more with that than just your average guy that oh i guess i could use this they're not going to take advantage of it as much as a, a verlander or a cole or a, a bauer you know one of those guys that really has the mind for it it's just another tool in their arsenal in my mind yeah just it's it's on a different level than other uh, cheating scandals that have been talked about ad nauseum for the past year and a half now. So yeah, it's not much of a story, I think, at least. But it's interesting nonetheless. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we are recording this on Sunday night. And while we are recording, the Browns are kicking off their first playoff game in 18 years. And that bring some attention to the Mariners because their drought is one of the only ones that's longer than the Browns drought. So I I guess, do you think that these sorts of droughts are a black eye for the leagues when there's teams that have these long droughts? Is this a sign that, you know, well, maybe the sport's just not fair or is it just, hey, that happens in sports, that sometimes teams are just bad? What do you think, Maz? I really think that's quite an anomaly that the that the Mariners haven't been in the playoffs since 2001. I mean, you think that they were pretty good in the early 2000s. Obviously, they had the 2001 season, but then they weren't bad at all in 2002 and 2003. There were still 91 teams, and it's just dumb luck. That's how baseball is sometimes, is that they could just miss out on the playoffs. But it's unique when you look at the Browns, though, that they've just been straight up horrible for the last borderline 20 years. <laughs> the Mariners have been good, as I mentioned, and they've had a couple of 500 seasons. The, the Browns have only had three 500 seasons since they last made the playoffs. So I think it's just a testament to the parody in a, a game like baseball and also in a game like hockey, too, where you know no one's really close to approaching that drought. And just for just how bad luck last two decades. Yeah, and I think, I mean, so the the Browns would have made it without the expanded playoff this year. But I think it is worth it pointing out that MLB does have the smallest, until this past year, had the smallest amount of teams that qualify for the playoffs. I mean, the NBA and NHL let over half the league in now the nhl is getting a little better as they're expanding it's going to be down to just half the teams but traditionally baseball has only let 10 in for the last few years and before that it was even uh, tighter and so i don't know 
I feel like there's some math behind it where eventually there's going to be teams that have droughts like this. I do think the Mariners did get stuck in this cycle of we're almost there, we're almost there, and being just at the cusp of being a playoff contender where if MLB let half the teams in, had a 16-team playoff, they would have made it a number of times. So Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the way that the playoffs are in baseball. I mean, have the Mariners been the best team in the AL West in the last 20 years? Probably no. I mean, they had the A's were really, really good in the early 2000s. The Angels were really, really good in the early 2000s. And then after that, the Rangers got really good for a handful of years. And now the A's are good again. And it's kind of just like they're always second best and they're always just fighting for a wild card spot. And, you know, obviously that goes throughout the rest of the league. So it's always just never the best, but close, as you mentioned. Yeah. So uh, good luck, Mariners fans. It should get better, but you will eventually, mathematically, you will have your day sometime soon. And hey, when you make it, maybe you'll actually win games, unlike my favorite team, the Twins, who just, they make it, and yay, we made it, and now we're done for the year. So, we'll see. It might be interesting to talk about that sometime, comparing not making the playoffs at all to making it every year and then having your heart broken and failing. I don't know. Yeah. Probably worth probably worth more of a discussion at a later date. Just a little plug. If you would like to join in the Our Baseball Book Club, we are reading Astro Ball this month. And at the end of the month, we are going to be having a discussion on the subreddit that is scheduled for January 30th. And we chose Astro Ball in part because it was written before the cheating scandal came out. And so we thought it would be interesting to read through the book with the lens of, okay, but how much of this was cheating and how much of it was the process? And we just thought that'd be really interesting to to go over and see. So if you want to join the book club, go ahead and pick up a copy of Astro Ball, and we will talk about that on January 30th. Maz, we will see you in just a little bit with Martin and Deej about the Mets-Indians trade. But we're going to hand things over to Andy, Deej, and Martin now. Just just a hypothetical scenario that... I, li- I like debating hypothetical scenarios, so so here's one that we can right. talk about. So let's, let's say Mike Trout finishes his career as a replacement level player, zero career war. Is he a Hall of Famer? Now let's figure out- Wait, 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 sorry. Are you saying he is so bad that his career war goes down from 70, whatever, to zero? Okay, so he he accumulates negative 70 and ends with exactly zero war. Yes. So he has like, what, 10 of the worst years any baseball player has ever seen? Let's take him there. All right. I'm eager to go on this journey. Yeah, let's further assume that he peaks at 100. Just because 100 is- you know, inner circle hall of famer. So let's get him, let's get him to inner circle hall of famer level and then bring him down to complete replacement level. So to get him to a hundred, he needs to put up about three more, you know, Mike Trout seasons. Uh, He's at 74.6 baseball reference war from the years of 2013 to 2015. He put up 26.2 baseball reference war, which add that to his end of his career would bring him to 100.8. So let's just add his Let's just add 2013 to 2015 to his career total. 
That puts right. him at a career slash line of 304, 413, 583, uh, 996 OPS. Not quite 2,000 hits, but he's got 400 homers. He's got over 1,000 RBIs. He's got 100 war. He's a Hall of Famer. There's no need to go over this any further. It's like Edgar Martinez. Just about at the... Yeah. That's like almost exactly the same career war as Joe Morgan and what Albert Pujols is at right now. Pretty much, yeah. He'd have three MVPs. Let's give him another one in those three years. He's a Hall of Famer. All right. So now that we know what a 100 war trout career looks like, let's see what it would look like if his career fell completely into the toilet and he puts up five straight years of negative 20 war. Is that war. even possible? Now, well, I don't know how to figure out what a negative 20 war season yeah. would look like, uh, but one of the users on the subreddit did that work for okay. us already. Uh, so shout out to uh, Reddit user slightly awkward, and there's a, an underscore in between the slightly awe and the quirk making his name. awkward. Yeah, making their name very <laughs> awkward. Like meta, 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 meta awkward. Yeah, the average person, and the, keep in mind this is person, not baseball player. You know, you or I, just well, a, a well, normal, a normal okay. person, <laughs> uh, would put up about negative fifteen WAR yeah. in a season. And this is assuming they bat ninth, they get about six hundred plate appearances in a season, and they play DH. So I'm just going to take these numbers, scale them up a little bit to give him more plate appearances, since in this hypothetical scenario the Angels will keep will, will bat him leadoff. Uh, add in some bad center field defense and base running to get those extra negative five wins to get him to negative 20. So you got five seasons of him doing absolutely nothing at the plate and then also being bad at defense and base running. So, so this numbers, is basically a scenario where he shows up to spring training in like 2025 blindfolded. Pretty much. Like he has much. lost the ability to see. Pretty much. Now, in the real world, I, ex- I feel like if he did that, he would just... He would be terrible for two months, and then he'd develop, like, baseball sonar. Yes. Just because he's adjusted to every other problem he's had, but yeah, in, that's probably in, in re- not going to happen. In real life, there's no way he would get five years of being this bad. He'd probably get maybe a season or two and then just being get given up on. Um, so the numbers that the, that slightly awkward did uh, gave this person about 18 walks in a season just by sheer luck. So we'll say 21 walks in a season if we're giving Trout 700 plate appearances. So, assuming Mike Trout goes O for the next five years while drawing a total of 105 walks and does absolutely nothing else, he finishes with a career slash line of 198, 293, 376, obviously with the same counting numbers, and five more walks. Now, he's obviously not going to be a Hall of Famer with those numbers, but... Keep in mind, he was the best player in baseball for 13 years, and one of the best baseball players of all time for 13 years. So with that reputation of being only one uh, one of only two players to win, f- again, in this scenario, four MVP awards, uh, would that reputation be enough to get him into the Hall? Well, I think it's sort of baseball tradition to only look at the good stuff and ignore the bad stuff, right? Like, Ricky Henderson stole 130 bases in 1982 or whatever it was. I don't know how many times yeah. he got caught stealing. Like, if he got caught stealing a hundred yeah. times, that's not helping his team at all. Uh, but we, we, you know, we, we know Cy Young won 511 games. I don't know how many games he lost. Like, he lost, well, he has the most losses yeah, in history as I, well. I, so. I'm sure, yeah. So, what, what I, what is interesting about this is we really don't have a baseline to compare this against. We, we have not seen a player who, at some point in his career, had he retired that day, would be a Hall of Famer but then became so bad that he lost that kind of Hall of Fame 
talent in that Hall of Fame yeah. standing, and it ended up not making it into the Andrew Hall of Fame. Jones. Now there have been plenty of guys like yeah. like Andrew Jones. If he if he retired after his Braves career, he's probably not a Hall of Famer. He was certainly on the way, and then he just tanked. because right. the assumption. The assu- those that his career was sort of assumptions. Yeah. Like, yeah, yes. if he just has a normal aging yeah. curb, he'll be in the Hall of Fame. But then, exactly. he, but then he cratered. Yeah, there, there, there has never been a player that had at any point in their career they had Hall of Fame numbers and then they didn't make it into the Hall of yeah. Fame. Yeah, assuming you know, not counting steroids and all that stuff. I feel like if this Trout scenario happened, the voters would look at his numbers like five years after he retired, mm-hmm. and I feel like they would have collectively just. Like just subconsciously, all decided he probably got hurt. Yeah, I'm voting him in. And just furthermore, yeah. I think that like like what I was saying earlier about we only really look at the good stuff and we ignore the bad stuff. I think the voters like would say, hey, like he had those good seasons. Yeah, those bad seasons were bad, but like we don't need to mathematically add them up. It's just that like he had some bad years, yeah. but he had so many good years that that outweighs it. Yeah, I think it's kind of. I think it's just generally accepted among like the baseball Hall of Fame writers community that you can't play yourself out of the Hall of Fame. If, right. if you're if you were a Hall of Famer at one point in your career and then you become bad and you become not a Hall of Famer, you're still a Hall of Famer because you are still at one point in your career. You know, you had those Hall of Fame numbers yeah. again. Had your career ended right then? If anything, it's a it's a uh, it's a sabermetric argument uh, because like by war, you know, having zero war, it's like not not like zero chance. Yeah. I did also run some numbers, so let's just assume that right now, Mike Trout becomes replacement level for the rest of his career. So to do this, I'm just going to take his numbers from 2011. So closer to the Andrew Jones, Albert Pujols. Pretty much, yeah. Basically, Albert Pujols, if he was, if he became bad a couple years earlier, or Andrew Jones, if he became bad a couple years later. All right. Yeah, so let's just assume he turns into 2011 Mike Trout for the rest of his career. Um, In that small sample size year, he hit 220, 281, 390. Uh, good for a 672 OPS. Um, he was a basically a league average player, but let's just say in those in these next 10 years, he's lost a step, and his defense and base running brought him down to replacement level. So in those 10 years, which is the last 10 years of his contract, um, 10 years of about we'll say 650 plate appearances with that slash line and that and those power rates, uh, bring his career numbers down to 258, 344, and 4, uh, 477, which is a, a 831 uh, OPS. Still pretty impressive slugging. He does. He does finish with 522 homers, which is a slam dunk Hall of Fame number. You know, no no clean 500 homer player has ever not made it to the Hall of Fame. So those numbers, but let's just, let's assume he doesn't have the home runs and he finishes with, you know, 400 or something. So that's kind of the, the Griffey trajectory, right? Kind of. That's a more realistic projection. Griffey, if he stopped hitting home runs entirely. And but Griffey got 99 point what percent of the vote? Yeah, there's, uh, not, I think three voters didn't yeah. vote for him. Once again, I think this falls to the three MVPs role. Yes. He was so good for the first 10, 12 years of his career that they look at the rest and go, all right, he declined. He got old. He was that good for the first 10. And and there's something to be said for that, because uh, I think the Hall of Fame is like, uh, we need certain people who are like amazing to be memorialized. And, uh, you know, like we only care how good you are. Like nobody cares if you're average or bad you just kind of like if you're just under a, a certain threshold you're just kind of ignored but like i think just kind of yeah. preserving the greatness is the the spirit behind the hall of fame so i think that like just looking at the good stuff they did is kind of in line with that so what we're saying is there's nothing mike trout could do on the baseball field outside of you know 
kicking a puppy every single day mm. or, or, <laughs> or juicing himself to the gills, that would keep him out of the Hall of Fame? Juicing trout? I don't, I don't, think, don't so. think there's anything I think at this statistically point, he could do. Yeah. As long as the rest of his career war is like, you know, not not much worse than replacement, he has nothing to worry about at all. All right, well, that's all the trout talk for today, but stick around because Deej and Martin are going to be back in just a bit, along with Maz, to talk about the big Mets Indians trade, so stick around. Welcome back, everybody. I am Martin. Joining me today are Maz and Deej. How are you two today? Doing well. Doing very well. Uh, well, I've been better. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, rough, rough couple days. Yeah, been there, for, uh, done that for Cleveland fans. Yes, for Cleveland baseball fans. Yeah, less so for Cleveland football fans. Well, we're recording this on Saturday night, so hopefully by the time this airs, that'll still be true. Yeah, we'll see. I am pulling for the Browns as well. You know, can't hate them. Yeah, it wouldn't be boring. But that's a different sport. Right. What yeah. we're here to talk about is the big one. The only sport that really matters. Thursday afternoon, Jeff Passan tweets, The New York Mets are deep into talks on a deal to acquire Francisco Lindor from the Cleveland Indians. Within about 30 minutes, the trade was official, which is about as fast as I can remember a major trade going from rumor tweet to completed. Yeah, that, that's not- noteworthily fast for sure. I'm good with that. I love the the whole, hey, uh, rumor is this trade's going to happen. Half hour later, oh, hey, everyone, the trade happens. Right. It's like three days of nonstop. The, 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 the Mets are in talks with the Cleveland Indians about acquiring Francisco Lindor. Possibility of this player being included. Possibility of this player. The Indians want this. The Mets want that. Just give it to me straight. So on that note, the final end trade was... Lindor to the Mets, but also Carlos Carrasco. And going back to Cleveland, Andres Jimenez, Ahmed Rosario, and a pair of prospects, Isaiah Green and Josh Wolf, who I am not a big prospect town, but I don't know a ton about them. Yeah, that was the Mets' second round pick each of the last two years. One was their second round pick in 19 and one in 20. So just kind of that level worth of prospect. It's an outfielder and a pitcher. Uh, I don't think anyone on either side, fan-wise, knows that much more about them. Right. And I don't think there's really much to be overly excited for in either of those two prospects, but the big one was definitely Jimenez. As a Met fan, I didn't really want to lose him. Tell us a little about Jimenez. I, I, I don't know much about him. He was an international signing, I want to say in the same class as like Soto and Guerrero Jr. Okay. Yeah, they're about the same age. Entering 2020, I believe he was expected to be called up Sometime in the second half, they didn't think he was quite ready yet. He was sort of an unexpected addition to the Major League roster when the season started late. Now he's a shortstop, right? By trade, he's a shortstop. He sort of ended up playing, filling every role. Like okay. second base, shortstop, the occasional third base. So kind of doing what McNeil did the previous year, just kind of kind of a super sub type, Ben Zobrist. Pretty much, but no outfield experience. I don't know if he's ever played in the outfield. Yeah, I'd put him closer to, like, a Gene Segura position, where he's just playing the two middle infield positions, Mm -hmm. one very well and one pretty well. Mm -hmm. He got at least one Rookie of the Year vote, 
and this is going to sound very harsh to Rosario, but he looked like instantly polished from day one in a way that Rosario unfortunately never did. Especially the last two years. Now, Rosario looked, he looked good in 19. Rosario in 2017 was like a global top three or four prospect behind like Moncada and I can't remember else, but he came up and it took him 15 games to draw a walk. <laughs> it happens. Walks, walks are boring. So he ended up with just the painfully bad on base percentage. Three walks to 49 strikeouts in his rookie season. That's a little rough. It happens. 2018, little strides forward. A little bit better at everything, but still below average in pretty much every facet. 2019, he started out terrible, like in every aspect. I want to say in either May or June, he made like six errors in that month, and everyone was like, move him to the outfield, you gotta do something or he's never gonna play in the majors again. And then he ended up having a legitimately really good second half. He had 319, 351, 453, which is like exactly what everyone had been hoping for. And then 2020 rolled around and all of those gains just sort of vanished. It took him even longer to draw walk this time. He did not draw walk until his 29th game this time in mm. like his 100th plate appearance as opposed to like 50. Now, how does that compare to uh, to Astadio? I, th- I feel like everything's uh, relative to the, the Astadio coefficient. He also strike. He was also striking out a quarter of the time, so it's oh, it's much bad worse. Bad comparison. Bad comparison. <laughs> I hate to make this projection, but get ready to see just some of the worst at bats you'll ever see against right-handed pitching. Oh, very nice. Like if the other, gu- I hate to be rude to him because he seems like a genuinely good person. If the other pitcher is right-handed and has a decent slider, it's probably over. All right. It kind of sounds like uh, Rosario lost his job to Jimenez, and then they get shipped off together. Is that is that kind of what happened? And They sort of soft platooned. Jimenez just kept playing well, and they're like, all right, let's just keep playing him. Rosario got a lot of starts against lefties and at-bats against lefties which did lead to him hitting maybe my favorite home run ever, that walk-off homer against Chapman in Yankee Stadium. Mm, That was a good time. That was pretty great. Walk-off home run on the road against the Yankees in Yankee Stadium in the seventh inning. Just like the perfect weird sentence. Probably one of the top moments of 2020. Yeah, by far. At least as a Mets fan. He just never figured it out. I remember a lot of the talk with the Mets this offseason before this was, what are they going to do at shortstop? Are they going to give Rosario another chance? Are they going to soft bench him for Jimenez? And I guess they just decided to go for the straight upgrade and get the guy they could just play there every day. Did you know this better than me? Ramirez is the third baseman pretty much definitively, right? I would say not necessarily. So J-Rim is a natural shortstop. He's actually quite good, or he was, but then once we called Frankie up, obviously that was over. Right. He hasn't played shortstop in a while, and he's, you know, pushing 30, so he's a step behind these younger guys, so he's not going to play short. But he, uh, every year when they kind of talk about shifting guys around, he basically says, I'll play third or second, but just uh, let me know before the season starts so I can pick one and stick with it. So he can work around these dudes based on uh, what's going on, and uh, and I think he, he would do so, so... Given Jose is flexible and can be at least competent at either second or third, 
but not amazing at either. Where would you kind of see these three guys uh, playing out next year? If Rosario is, I'm going to say, average as a hitter, I think they would probably put him in as at second and Rosario at short, or vice okay. versa. I've never actually seen Rosario at second. But if Rosario isn't hitting, they'd probably just bench him pretty quick. He's not like Andrelton Simmons or someone that you have to get in the field. Because even once he got past those errors, he was usually fine in the field, not stellar. It's really weird. I mean, if I were the Indians, I don't know how you go into 2021 not having Jimenez as your starting shortstop immediately. That's kind of my uh, instinct, too, yeah. I feel like Ahmed is not a good enough defensive shortstop that you're like, yes, here you go, and it's okay if you don't hit. I think he's kind of uh, on the razor's edge this year. Uh, Jimenez is definitely the guy who's replacing Lindor. Jimenez, yeah. I watched a a lot of his games last year, obviously, because I watched almost every Met game last year. But I loved Jimenez last year for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe I just like my idiot brain got a connection to him for some reason. But I fell in love with him last year. I know he didn't really hit well, but the kid plays a really good defense up the middle. Doesn't matter if it's short. Doesn't matter if it's second. If I'm the Indians, I don't know how I don't go into 2021 saying Jimenez is our starting shortstop, our shortstop of the future. Let's go. Yeah, looking at his numbers again, he was basically a league average hitter, but he just looked polished in the field. Yeah, absolutely. He looks like someone who's been playing shortstop for like five or six years already. Yeah, it was either the first or second game of the season, I remember. He was brought in as a defensive replacement. The runner on first was going and there was a weird broken bat chopper and he basically redirected himself mid-play to get the out, to get the ball and get the out. And that was the kind of like fluid adjustment I hadn't seen a Mets infielder make in like a decade. Definitely not with Rosario at shortstop either. Yeah. And before that, our most frequent second basemen were like Daniel Murphy and a million-year-old Cano, so not ageless defenders. Now, War hates uh, Ahmed Rosario's glove, or at least baseball reference. He's consistently, you know, negative, you know, defensive runs. So just from watching him, is is he like losing those in range, or is he making errors, or is it an arm thing, or kind of where, what are strengths and weaknesses? I feel like he just bobbles a lot of stuff. All right. Like, stuff that shouldn't be super tough defensive plays, but he just, like, bobbles a lot of stuff, I feel like. Hmm. That's going off of, you know, last year and then towards the middle end of 2019, he had a lot of problems. Yeah, that's kind of tough, because I feel like if you're like, yeah, he's got he's got good hands, but his range sucks, you're like, yeah, third base. Like, yeah, I could deal with that. I remember there were rumors about them trying to move him to third this year. Mm-hmm. Is he kind of a bigger guy? He's like 6'1", right? He's like 6'1", six, 6'2", six, but... So he profiles there. In 18 and 19, when he was basically the full-time shortstop both years, he made 16 and 17 errors those two years. Yeah, that's yeah, on the high side, but not insane. In 2020, in a much smaller sample, he only made two. Alright. So if I had to guess the problem this year was just first step range. Range. Sounds like a third baseman then. Because I feel like range at third is kind of, if you have a shortstop who loses range but has, like, hands and arm, that's kind of a third baseman, I feel like. It's possible. I do not remember him having a plus arm. but okay. He doesn't have a bad arm, that's for sure. It's not anything great, but yeah, it's it's definitely average. Yeah, his arm's, I think, fine. But yeah. while we're talking about range, there's the other 
weird component of his speed. He was billed as a speed guy, and he's very fast. He's also an astonishingly bad base runner, at least in terms of stolen bases. He's a fast guy that doesn't really steal bases, and it's it's amazing to me. Looks like he tries to steal bases, but he's bad at it. This year, they I guess they just gave him a oh, red light, because yeah. that one caught stealing was a game-ending pickoff. Oh, man. He did not actually attempt to steal this year. So he led the majors in caught stealing in 2019. So 10 caught stealing against only 19 steals, which, like, if you're going to lead the majors in caught stealing, you need to have, like, 50 stolen bases. You need bases. to be Ricky Henderson. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's, uh, yeah, just numbers-wise, that that looks bad. Then no, no, no real attempted steals. The only caught stealing was actually a pickoff. So at least he's like, all right, this isn't my forte. But the Mets in general don't really steal a lot of bases. Yeah. I mean, it's tough to say, like, he just sucks, or maybe he just doesn't know how to steal bases because it's the Mets. <laughs> maybe yeah. he can kind of be more aggressive and be better on the base paths, and that'll become a plus of his. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying to look on the bright side for you guys. Here's hoping. I will say as just a final sentimentality thing for Rosario, in 2018 at David Wright's last game, they replaced Wright when they took him out of the game with Rosario by putting right in the game and moving the shortstop over to third. Yeah. And I remember thinking that was like a very intentional passing the torch type move. Yeah. It unfortunately did not work out for Rosario, but I still remember thinking that and being very strangely hopeful for the future. All right. So given the, the waning speed, the fact he's six two one ninety, and you guys don't think too much of his range kind of sounds like, a third baseman as opposed to a second baseman, just based on, on that skill set, not knowing much. That would make sense, but he's also going to have to get a lot better at hitting for yeah, that to stick. that's the problem, yeah. yeah. Like, these days, third baseman, uh, they're junior power position, you know, you gotta be able to hit 30 dingers and get on base, so, uh, yeah, he might, he might only have the bat for a second baseman. I mean, coming from a Mets standpoint, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he turns it around in Cleveland. And, you know, like I said, start stealing more bases and maybe gets a bit better with the bat. But also, I really wouldn't be surprised if in 2023 he's not on the team anymore. It really could go either way. Yeah, it looks like got three more years of control. So one, two, and then maybe three if he's he might get untendered. That less than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, he uh, he came up young. He's uh, about to hit his fifth, yeah. year of, uh, uh, fifth year in the big leagues. I'd have to look at his service time chart to say what that means uh, ARB-wise. But yeah. I think he immediately like got through no. prospect eligibility in 17. So, But overall, Jimenez is definitely the guy that you should be most excited about yeah. and the guy that I was kind of upset to lose. I kind of got over Rosario like two years ago, I think, mm-hmm. like late 2018 and then early 2019. I was like, all right, I'm really over this guy. We should have traded him. I basically spent ago. the second half of 2019 going, please let this stick. Yeah. Maybe that's one of the reasons that I fell in love with Jimenez so much, because I was like, all right, finally, a reason to move on from Rosario. And <laughs> it just it didn't happen for some oh, reason. Oh, ouch. And now we know why. Yeah, so R- Rosario kind of sounds like a warm body, like, hey, this guy can put up a uh, one-point-something war season for you guys at, you know, up the middle somewhere, and probably not much more. Anything beyond that considered a pleasant surprise. Probably. Yeah. And speaking of Jimenez, what I specifically said when the before Carrasco was mentioned in the trade was, if they can extend Lindor, I'm perfectly okay giving up Jimenez. And then I saw Carrasco's name and just 
lost control of my limbs for about a minute. All right, let's talk about Carlos Carrasco's contract. He's basically making eight, nine, ten, twelve million dollars through age thirty-five, which is twenty twenty-two. And in twenty twenty-three, he's got a fourteen million team option with a three million buyout. So this this is so low risk, high gain. That's a very good contract. It's insane. And he will be thirty-four, thirty-five the next couple of years, but that it doesn't seem like he's lost anything stuff wise. I mean, Mother Nature or Father Time is cruel, but he looked, you know, peak sharp in 2020. His leukemia, as far as I can tell, like his 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 body, he can pitch and he's good to go. Yeah, I mean this this is a guy. He's got a good upside. He's always had like a low threes ERA, gotten to the middle. He won 18 games in 2017. I just remember him being like a Fangraphs like favorite because he moved to the bullpen and then came back like yeah. mid-season well, he was banished to the bullpen uh because of his attitude like and, and which is crazy because he's great now and everybody loves him and he's like team leader and everything but yeah when he was young he was like uh he was wild uh he put up some bad numbers he was frustrated he would you know butt heads with with people and he was banished to the bullpen for performance and attitude reasons Ah, I see. Yeah, and then he seemed to really be a guy that everybody kind of loves over in Cleveland. And then, you know, the leukemia thing, and obviously that that happened and he got better. But yeah, he seemed to be a real fan favorite. I mean, as far as I could tell. Yeah, and uh, the thing about uh, Carrasco is he was the only remaining, uh, you know, figment of the Cliff Lee trade. So back in 08, you know, Cliff Lee, that crazy season, won the Cy Young. They were to trade him the next year for prospects. So the only reason Crasco like was even on a long leash was because of that. Because he was so you're talking a 27 year old with a five plus ERA, and the only reason they were still giving him a shot was you know to salvage that Cliff Lee trade. Right. Let me see. Let's see. Jason Knapp, who I've never heard of. Nor should you. Jason Donald. He's the perfect game guy. He he hit. He oh my the, god. Uh, Andres Galarraga. He's Andres Galarraga hit guy. That was him. Oh my god, I just but that's, remembered that. That's all he ever did. <laughs> oh no. Ugh. And Lou Marson, who I have never heard never of. Never heard of. He was, he was the Indians catcher for a couple of years. He wasn't, uh, yeah. The fact that you don't remember any of these guys is is very reasonable. And that also means that because of that, the Cliff Lee trade is selected, which also means the Bartolo Colon trade is still alive. Yeah, Bartolo was, uh, uh, I'd have to pull up his page, but he's probably an international free agent signing in like 90 early 90s i would think who knows traded to the expos from cleveland for cliff lee brandon phillips brady sizemore and whoever lee stevens is who didn't even play after that season yeah he was the rangers first baseman for a while just kind of kind of mitch moreland type guy and he was like you know i say toward the end of his career still wait on the bartolo comeback tour though i wouldn't put it past him this year Let's talk about the man himself, the centerpiece of the trade, Francisco Lindor. Um, he's he's the perfect player. He's he's good at everything. He's like uh, platinum glove at short. He's hit you know thirty thirty five dingers several times. He steals bases. He's like adorable. Uh, he's got a <laughs> like his smile like just one smile melts your heart. He's got such a good attitude. Uh, he's pretty much like if the Indians were ever going to throw a $300 million deal at anybody, it's so obviously this guy. And if they're not going to do it for him, 
he deserves it somewhere, and I'm glad it's with the Mets. Right. When someone interviewed Cleveland's Dolan a couple years ago, he basically said, enjoy Lindor while you can, yeah. or something that was, like, really cold-hearted. Yeah, pretty much that. It is weird that I'm viewing this part of it from a Cleveland perspective right now, because I should be just, like, running around screaming, but this has to be brutal for Cleveland. Yeah, you know, it is and it isn't. Uh, it is brutal, but, you know, uh, we've traded everybody. We traded CC Sabathia, we traded Cliff Lee, uh, we traded... Uh, Victor Martinez, uh, we traded pretty much like our entire, like our aces, you know, Kluber, Bauer, um, Clevenger. So nobody ever stays. So, uh, you know, we got him for six years and he was great. Arguably the most uh, beloved player in, you know, definitely like in recent memory. One of the best Cleveland shortstops of all time. Yeah. I mean, there's actually a couple Hall of Fame Cleveland shortstops, uh, Joe Sewell. I said one of. One of, yeah. So there's Joe Sewell, the guy who could not strike out. And then there's uh, Lou Boudreaux, who was also a World War II era guy. And then he was on that 48 championship team. I think he I think he managed it. I think he was a player manager. He invented the shift for Ted Williams, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then Omar Vizquel, like, you know, we'll see what's right. up with him. But he's definitely Possibly. a Hall of Very Good at worst. Uh, yep. So, yeah. So, you know, to be up against those guys and, and, and stand out is amazing. Yeah, I mentioned it yesterday that I think like just being traded like Lindor is already maybe the best shortstop in Mets history before he even steps on the field. And, you know, I was reminded of Jose Reyes, right? And, yeah, you know, Reyes, and... Reyes was really good, but it's sort of, this is also a quantity question. True. Yeah. Like, Reyes had that brief little cameo at the end of his career for the Mets, but for the most part, he was there for the first I want to say seven years. Yeah. And in his prime, he was great. I mean, his 06 and 07 are on another level, but I don't think that compares even to what Lindor has done the past couple of years. Yeah, Lindor is uh, the best of uh, Jose Reyes plus 35 dinger power and gold glove fielding. Definitely a better fielder. Definitely a better power hitter. Doesn't steal as many bases, obviously, but Jose was just insane. But yeah, and then Bud Harrelson, obviously, but he's he's there, man, already. And he, the man hasn't even really officially put on the uniform yet. Right. We were looking at the Mets uh, career war shortstop list and goes like uh, Jose Reyes, Harrelson, and then third place had like five. Yeah, it's like as Dribble Cabrera or, or Rosario somehow. So if, if Frankie has so much as a, a, a typical season for him, he's already number three on that list. But yeah, we got to see how it goes. And you mentioned it with him, his personality, his look. Oh, yeah. I can't stress enough how likable this guy is. If this guy is not like a household name in New York and we, you know, we extend him, let's say we extend him, then I I don't know what's going on. He's got everything working in his favor. He's better than Jeter. I'll I'll just say that. (laughs) I don't think you're really going to get a lot of of pushback from me on that. Oh, no. <laughs> better than Jeter. I said it. I'm not disagreeing with you. I don't think either of us are. Yeah, if if he's not a superstar, then I don't know what Cohen's doing. I don't know what MLB's doing, but he deserves it, man. Not that Cleveland is a small market because it is a big market, but I mean, this is New York. Mm. You got a guy with his personality, with his level of play, with Again, his look in New York, he's got to be doing commercials. He's got to be on every season ticket plan. hes He's got to be a household name in a few years. Yeah. yeah, which also gives the Mets the interesting problem of having a like to figure out 
who they want to be the face because they've got DeGrom, they've got maybe Pete Alonso if he goes back to 2019 form, Dom Smith and Conforto for like homegrown guys. They've got McNeil as well. Yeah, they've got a few options. Now, in terms of personality, uh, like DeGrom, is he kind of like a, is he kind of like a more serious, like working man type, or does he kind of like show his personality? Or and what about Alonso? Because Frankie, like, he'll just win you over immediately with with his like personality. Alonso is probably the one that's got the most personality. DeGrom is a little subdued when he's not on the mound, at least. When he's not pitching, he's a very he seems very just relaxed in the dugout. But his face is always going to be the pitching part. But Alonzo, even this year, was even last year, he was really fun to watch. He was just a big personality, even when he was struggling. Even when he was doing those ESPN games where he was mic'd up and stuff. And he lo- you could tell he loves that sort of stuff, being mic'd up and interacting with people. Yeah, so the hope is they're also assembling a pretty good group of clubhouse guys. That being said, I cannot wait for that first ESPN game where it's Pete, it's Frankie, it's Conforto and McNeil all mic'd up, all chatting back and forth. I cannot wait for that. I'm going to be so excited when that happens. Yeah. And I actually thought about this just now, but at the beginning of this, I mentioned that this took like an hour tops from first mention on Twitter to completion. And that's something that's shocked me about the Mets front office under Cohen is that they are really tight-lipped. They've kept everything under wraps until it's, like, ready to fire off. It was the same way with McCann. Yeah, I I think so. I think McCann was, like, a day. Yeah. And what also gets me is when the Padres did their whole thing last week, Cohen went on Twitter and was like, hey, credit to the Padres. They have a great farm system. They have the flexibility to trade for those guys. And every Mets fan's like, well, we're probably not trading for anybody. Because Alderson had also said something like, we don't really have a great farm system, so we're probably going to focus on free agency for now, like, without outright ruling out trades. To go from, like, publicly downplaying the idea of a trade to, oh, by the way, here's Lindor and Carrasco. Less than a week later, I believe. Yeah, just total shock. Now, I'm not sure I've heard anyone really talk about this, but, like, you know, there were no winter meetings this offseason. I guess everything was done over text. So, like, uh, there, you know, it, it's got to be a lot harder to be, a, like, a rumor mill type reporter. Like, you know, there's nobody with, with like, the horn up to the wall at the uh, the Opryland Hotel during the uh, winter meetings. Like, this is pretty much all what, what uh, you know, the, the GMs are choosing to reveal over, I assume, mostly Twitter. Like, I, I doubt Jeff Passan is on, like, a group chat with a bunch of GMs and then, like, Passan's there. So, like, I'm kind of curious, like, what the differences might be in terms of how these guys are, are learning about the rumors. And that might explain why there's a lot more uh, surprises. I had not thought about that angle. The lack of in-person stuff, reporters wouldn't be able to just sidle up to a guy at the bar and get some scoop that he can't say out loud, but can also just, like, hint at. Mm, body language, you're like, well, I can't say that, but... <laughs> Right. And then there's, in the Mets case, it's also just a difference in operation, how they're run, because semi-famously the Mets under the Wilpons would leak transaction info to the SNY writers, Mm -hmm. who would, for better or worse, like, hint at things online. And I don't know if that was to sway public opinion or just to gauge public opinion, but... Mm -hmm. It seems to me like the new regime with Cohen and Alderson and Jared Porter as the official GM 
they're very much more concerned with the actual task rather mm. than the perception of it. Speaking of Jared Porter, that was one of the things that was most refreshing about this trade is we didn't give up one of our top prospects for it. I mean, we gave up a major league guy and another major league guy who's got some major league experience. Jimenez is basically the closest thing to the top prospect here, I think. Yeah, yeah. but he's no Brett Beatty. This isn't quite like the Mookie Betts trade where you're giving up a really good player in Verdugo and then I think at least one other top prospect. Yeah, that was it was refreshing to see like, oh, this looks like an actual trade that a GM would make that looks like everybody is kind of okay. I mean, I know that the, the census has kind of been like that the Indians got really fleeced on this. And Yeah, the crazy... So Carrasco, like, you, you saw that contract. Yeah, there's a very good argument to be made that this would have been a fair trade for just Carrasco. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Absolutely. And, you know, Frankie, we want to get something for him. He's he's in his final year of arbitration. It's probably getting $20 million or maybe high teens. Like, that's too much for the Indians right now. That'd be about half their payroll. Um, but yeah, it was mostly a salary dump slash, uh, face saving for Frankie, uh, uh, undertaking because you're only getting a year of him. But you got to think the Mets extend him though. I mean, hopefully. Yeah. I don't want to see him go anywhere else. Like what they did with DeGrom a few years ago, uh, when they extended him, they kind of extended him. They extended him like two days before the season started. I would still be really surprised if we hit opening day and he's not extended yet. I would be pretty surprised. Yeah. So there's a huge, uh, you know, uh, turnover in uh, on the Mets in terms of, you know, new owner, new GM situation. So what's kind of the pecking order now is like, how, like what's Uncle Steve's role in it? Uh, does he, is he like a big baseball guy? Is he more just like a baseball fan who's a billionaire? Is the, you know, Alderson, he's not the GM anymore. Alderson is the president of baseball ops. And I'm guessing that they want Porter to step into that role sooner rather than later. Okay. Like in a year or two. But Cohen, all the sense I get is that he's a billionaire who just happens to be a baseball fan. Yeah. And it seems like he knows baseball very well, but he also is content to just let the smarter people in the room do 90% of the thinking. Mm-hmm. Probably just like he does in his regular businesses. You know, he doesn't yeah. micromanage. He puts the best people in charge that he could possibly put in charge to tell me what I should be doing. Or, you know... You do what you need to do, make me money. You know, except here it's now, do what you need to do, win me a World Series. Mm. You know, I'm just going to sit on Twitter, give you my blessings, and tweet about black jerseys and Carvel ice cream. (laughs) And I saw this in, I want to say it was Forbes the other day. There was a talk about how under the Wilpons, Sandy didn't know how much budget he has. There was a mention about in 2018 when they signed Jay Bruce and some reliever in like, two or three day span that it was because like 40 million of budget suddenly opened up the Lopons were like oh uh here you can spend exactly this amount of money all the b-tier guys are gone except for like these three guys and he's like all right i guess i'll take this sounds will Pony. and then here today you've got jared porter saying the luxury tax is not a hard limit if we have to go a little bit over it we might be willing to rather than our budget is the 1949 Kansas City A's. That was very refreshing. I always talk about how I listen to the press conferences and how everybody has just kind of impressed me from top to bottom. Jared Porter impressed me on the Lindor press conference, and I'm thrilled to hear Sandy back as well. But everybody, it's just so refreshing just hearing everybody like, there's no hard limit. We're not done. Uh, we could keep going. And 
all it's just so refreshing not to just immediately mentally think well we're done or that's the one move or well there's no chance we're getting Springer there's no chance we're gonna trade for Arenado as well there's no chance we're gonna trade for Brian it, it's so refreshing just to be like yeah maybe my team maybe I can't even express it yeah and to that to that same message that they got Lindor to fill a spot that they kind of had cobbled together. Like, shortstop was not their biggest need because they had Jimenez and possibly Rosario. They just went for a straight upgrade because it was there, which I can't remember the last time the Mets did that. And that's incredibly refreshing. I can't remember the last time we had a top 10 position player in baseball on our team. Probably the right year, right or Beltron. Or both. Now, uh, we would be remiss if, uh, you know, as, as fun as it's been talking about how exciting the Mets are going to be, there's kind of the, the obverse, the uh, the whooshing void left in Cleveland based on, uh, you know, losing these guys. Yeah, uh, Jose Ramirez might break the intentional walk record this year. He may well, yeah. We got Well, Fran Mil Reyes is also a pretty good hitter. But yeah, it's basically those two guys. And uh, Josh Naylor, a guy that was in the... Clevenger trade. I like him a lot. He's he's uh, kind of a first baseman, uh, lefty throwing. I uh, was probably going to play outfield just because somebody has to. And you know, Roberto Perez, uh, he was a very good hitter. Didn't hit for a good average, but he drew a walk and he hit like 20, 25 dingers. So like, he's definitely not an embarrassing hitter at as a for a catcher, especially given how, how rough uh, it's been at catcher the last couple of years. Because uh, like, if you're a, a good there defensive are no good catcher, catchers anymore. Yeah, like... Uh, or there are like two. There's one. Yeah, there you go, two. Sure. But yeah, basically, if you're so much as like only slightly below average at hitting and you're as good a fielding catcher as, as Roberto Perez is, you know, like like we'll take that. Yeah, it's it's rough. It's hard to feel like... Uh, it's hard to not feel like you're kind of a farm system for the rest of the uh, the big leagues. Like I think, you know, in the 70s, you heard about how the Royals were basically the AAA team for the, uh, the Yankees, I think. Yeah, they... They'd send over, I think Reggie Jackson was in Kansas City, and then uh, uh, Catfish Hunter, or, and a couple other guys, uh, or the A's, rather, yeah, I think, when they're in Kansas yeah. City, and then Oakland, yeah, yeah. For some reason, all the A's stars ended up in, in New York, and um, yeah, it's it's tough, but you know, the, the Indians, uh, they can just kind of replenish with, you know, like, they, they can take good college pitchers who are you know, drafted in the third round and make them great somehow. Yeah, they have a really impressive pitching factory. You just worry about run support because I'm looking at this list of their 2020 hitters and Ramirez and Fran Mil Reyes are the only remaining above average hitters from that season. Yeah, sounds about like, right. The outfield hit like a collective 190. The outfield was alarmingly bad. Like, I, I, it's like, what? You can't find anyone who can play outfield and they couldn't. I think uh, they, they got a bunch of uh, platoon, you know, 4A guys and hoped that, like, something good would happen and, and nothing good happened. That's pretty right. much the plan. I am excited about Naylor. I think he's he's going to be good. We, we just had him at the end of the year after the trading deadline. I think I remember him going nuts in the uh, playoff series against the Yankees, yeah. Yeah, and I just remember him in the dugout, like, just kind of just, I, I liked his, uh, his attitude a lot. But man, that's going to be a heck of a division this year coming up. Uh, the AL Central, yeah, Indians, Royals, Tigers, boy. You have successfully named three teams that will not be winning the division title, yes. Well, exactly, there you go. I was talking about how loaded the basement of that division is going to be. I feel the White Sox and Twins are 
probably the two top favorites. Are they both going to crack 90 wins, you think? I, I would. <laughs> I could see that. It's hard for a good team not to. Especially so many tanking teams, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the AL is very much boom or bust. Do they both crack high 90s? Hard to say. I don't. Hard to say. And then you've got the NL East, where the Mets seem to be approaching the Braves in terms of talent level. I think the Braves are still better, but it's yeah. now it's like two or three games rather than eight. Well, the Braves lost like every starting pitcher last year. They lost Soroka. Hamels and Felix for separate. Uh, Hamels and Felix both opted out, I think, or got hurt immediately. I was thinking about that yesterday. I mean, you go position by position with the Mets and Braves. I really think there's only two positions that the Braves are better, and that's first and center. I mean, who who else is stepping up that you'd rather have that's a Brave? I like Albies a lot. It's he's he's still at second, right? Yes, I think he's going to be really take him over McNeil. McNeil is yeah, that's tough. Probably the full time, but they're probably even ish. McNeil's really Lindor good. Beats McNeil's, a be- McNeil's a better hitter. Absolutely. Yeah. Lindor beats Swanson. I don't know who Atlanta's third baseman is, but the Mets don't really have a third baseman right now. I would put J.D. Davis there. Yeah, he can hit, but he can't field, or they could do the opposite with Luis Guillorme. A great fielder, but can't hit. <laughs> Looks like Austin Riley at third. I don't know yes. much about him, though. Uh, right. Well, he could be really good. Yeah, he's yeah. still got a lot to prove. He's, he's been impressive. And then the Mets... Outfield defense could be dangerous because either they have a DH and they can just put, I don't know, Jackie Bradley in center and move Brandon Nimmo over to left. Yeah. Or they end up without a DH and they have to play Dom Smith and left in Nimmo in center and just have like a 2005 Yankees defensive outfield. Yeah, okay. Where uh, just everything in left center is going to be a double. And that's that actually worries me and it. I do get the sense that it worries Alderson because he basically said, we really want a DH in the National League. And that's probably true for a bunch of teams because the Nationals, just to break topic for a second, the Nationals signed Kyle Schwarber this afternoon. Mm. So either they are they want kind of a subpar defensive outfield or they're going to rotate Schwarber and someone else at DH. Well, now, is, uh, is first base available in Washington? I'd have to... Ch- they just got Josh Bell from uh, Pittsburgh. Okay, yeah. right, yeah. So, Forgot about that already. Well, between those two guys, they they better hope there's a DH in there somewhere. Now Bell's a switch hitter, right? And Schwarber's strictly lefty hitting. So, yes. Yeah, not really much of a platoon. Plus, Bell's not a platoon guy. He's, he's he needs to play every day. Yeah, he's a full time first baseman. Yeah, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully there's a DH, or and if not, you know, this year I I bet there will be very soon. All right, so I think we've covered pretty much every possible angle for the past couple of days of baseball news, or at least our circle of it. So, Maz, Deej, thank you both for being on, and I'm going to pass this along to Lewis. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Our Baseball Weekly. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. New episodes release every Monday. Join us next week as we continue our interview series with sporting news writer Ryan Fagan to talk about his Hall of Fame ballot and his immense baseball card collection. If you'd like to contact us with any questions, comments, interview requests, or transition music, email us at rbaseballweekly at gmail.com. 
Our Baseball Weekly is executive produced and edited by me, Lewis. Our production administrator is Christine. Segment two was hosted and written by Andy. Segments two and three were co-hosted by Martin and Deej. And segments one and three were co-hosted by Maz. Music for today was Into the J by Admiral Bob. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Our Baseball Weekly. We will see you next week on Monday.